Thank you, Ken. It is so good to be with you guys this morning. I'm really looking forward to, to getting to share some of the things that I have uh, studied. And you're glad I'm here too, aren't you? Yeah. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Felt really insecure at that moment. Uh, it was a few years ago uh, that Lisa and I were preparing uh, to take our second trip to Italy to go visit our son. Um, and uh, we had kind of learned as we'd traveled there the first time how to eat our way through Italy. Uh, if you've ever been to Italy, oh my goodness, it's, it's, it's this magical place. I mean, everything about it, right? The art, the creativity, the architecture, the sports, the culture, the people. But hands down, the best part is the food. It's the best part of Italy. I mean, all the food that you get, you get to eat. Um, and after having been there when we were there a few, few days, we'd kind of eaten our way through Italy. We'd enjoyed meals of, you know, pizza and pasta, gnocchi. Uh, and then we had tiramisu, and we'd have gelato, all these wonderful, wonderful calories. And after we'd eaten there for a few days, my son said, hey, I'd like to treat you guys to a, a gourmet meal. And we're like, yes, that, sure, that sounds great. And so he drove us, we were in Milan, he drove us north, and uh, we went to um, the little place of Lake Como. I don't know if you guys ever heard of Lake Como. Uh, it's famous for having all these A-list celebrities, uh, Madonna and Stallone, they have their villas there. So we drove uh, to this little town that was on the southern part of Lake Como, and as we walk into what was kind of an industrial section, I see the restaurant there, which was completely unimpressive. There was nothing noteworthy about it. But it was an incredible meal. Um, when my, my son had been living there for a few years, and so he kind of knew the language. And the chef he knew, who was a Gordon Ramsay uh, protege, and uh, so he came out, and, and we just have course after course of these wonderful artisan creations with all these beautiful wine pairings, right? And we're talking to the chef, and at one point, um, he, early in the meal, he brings, out this, <laughs> he brings out this little rack with like these baby tacos on it. I'm like, I'm a good-sized guy. I don't know if this is really gonna fill me a whole lot, but I pop one of those fellas in my mouth, and it's like, it's like this explosion of wonderful flavors. It was such... It was such an incredible dining experience. I asked Lisa about it, we said, never forget it. But it was more than just the food, right? It was everything, the setting was wonderful, obviously the artistry of it. But it was, all, it was also just the connection, the conversation we had, and the ability as a family to kind of deeply connect. It was one of the most incredible dining experiences I'd ever had. Now most of the time, we're just shoving food in our pie hole, right? I mean, we're not thinking a whole lot about it. It's just an average lunch on a Tuesday. But there are those moments when you have something that is more than a meal, right? Where you're different when you leave the restaurant than when you walked in. It's more than a meal. It's an encounter. You know what I'm saying? It's an encounter. It's more than just the digesting of calories. It's an experience. There is a meal in the Christian spirituality that is more than a meal. It is this beautiful encounter. And it's not a meal you're gonna see on the Food Network, you're not gonna see it on TripAdvisor or Yelp, but it is a meal that as we encounter, it shapes and forms us. And of course I'm talking about the Lord's Supper, right? The Eucharist. Um, as we kind of hop into the narrative today, you read that story and you kind of hear a little bit that Jesus, he takes his disciples and he sends them on ahead of himself. They're going to make preparations for the Passover. 
And the Passover is a meal that the children of Israel had been eating for hundreds of years. It, it commemorated uh, the, their deliverance out of Egypt. It not only, it not only looked back um, to Moses delivering them out of Egypt, but it also looked forward to the coming Messiah and his arrival and how he would deliver them from the oppression of uh, governmental forces and really establish his kingdom. So enter with me, just think a little bit in your mind's eye. What it would be like to be in Jerusalem during the Passover? All right, there's this bustle, there's this, this energy there. People are running around. Think of it a little bit like um, Times Square on New Year's Eve. It's elbow to elbow, or Coachella with tents everywhere. People are trying to make preparations for the meal. They're running around. Maybe you hear as you go by the temple, lambs being slaughtered in preparation for that. There's this, this great sense of expectation that is there. And so it's in this context that Jesus shares this real significant meal with his followers. It's on this night that he takes what was common for the Passover. He takes the bread and he takes the cup, but he reorients the meal around himself. He places himself at the center of the meal with his sacrifice as the fulfillment in God's kingdom. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of the Last Supper. Maybe it's Leonardo da Vinci's famous painting. Um, That's one example. I, I have to admit, I did kind of scroll through Google and look at a few little memes there, and there's a couple of them. Jesus. Table for 26, please. Waiter, uh, there's only 13 of you. Jesus, yes, but we're all going to sit on the same side. <laughs> this one is a little bit of Bible trivia for you. Um, uh, Jesus, one of you will betray me. Four of you will get book deals. <laughs> Peter, John, anyway, okay. I'd like to suggest a different image when we think of the Lord's Supper. Andrei Rublev was this Russian painter in the 15th century, and he painted this wonderful painting of the Trinity. And when you look at it, there's all sorts of beautiful imagery and symbolism there. But I want to uh, draw your attention to the center of the image. You see a table, and in the table is this chalice. And you probably can't see it, but in the chalice is sacrificial lamb. Now, I want to pull out just a little bit and look at the image from a different way. Um, At 3 o'clock, excuse me, yeah, 3 o'clock is the Holy Spirit. Right at the center on the top is Jesus. And at 9 o'clock is God the Father. Notice what's happening at the bottom of the image. What's happening at 6 o'clock? Joshua Ryan Butler, in his book, um, The Pursuing God, says this. The space is opened up at the 6 o'clock position, inviting us, the viewer, to enter into the circle of divine hospitality, to join in the feast. God wants us to do life with him. He wants to bring you and I into this communion to the very life and experience of God. And it's, <clears throat> it's in this image that I want to frame our, our thoughts about the Lord's Supper, that it's an encounter for us to partake of the life and communion with the Trinity. I just want to invite us. Let's take just a moment. Let's just pray together as God speaks through his word. Join me, would you? Heavenly Father, we believe that you are powerful, that you move and work in every aspect of our lives, certainly as we gather here today. 
God, would you slow down that internal clock inside of us that is hurried, that is rushed? Help us to think deeply about this meal, to be open, open hearts, open minds, to receive and to respond to that still, small voice of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, some of you may know um, the actor-comedian Chris Farley, right? Uh, He passed away tragically uh, at the age of 33. And he was a cast member of Saturday Night Live. And uh, some of his cast members would talk about how he lived. They would say, like, he lived this huge life of excess. All week long when he was on the show, he would just be wild living. Then he'd finish the show on Saturday night, and then he'd go to the cast party, the rap party, and they'd live it up. And then he'd spend all night long sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But his cast member said, Sunday morning, without fail, he showed up at his Catholic church, genuflecting, taking communion, participating, hungover, and then he'd go home, he'd sleep it off, and he'd start the next day all over again the next week. My question is, I wonder if that's how people think of communion, that it has nothing to do with our lives. <clears throat> it's, it's divorced from any, any way that we live. Or maybe it's some kind of thing where we think it brings favor. God likes us better when we do that. What I hope to see for us to see today is the Lord's table is this invitation to encounter Jesus and be transformed as we partake in his life. So Jesus shares this meal with his close followers, and they're celebrating Israel um, and their freedom from Pharaoh, but now Jesus wants us to partake in his life as a way of celebrating our freedom from the bondage of sin. Look what the text says. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, And he gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and he gave thanks, and he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now think with me back to that Rublev painting, right? There's that open space signifying that Jesus is inviting us into celebrating this meal. It's going to become this encounter of God's divine presence and that we become transformed as we partake of it. And so Jesus just grabs bread and the drink And it becomes this profound metaphor for his life and also his covenant with us. But I think there's something even more here. Rick Viotis says this, to put it simply, thanks buddy, you you are my brother, you are my brother, thank you. Rick Viotta says this, to put it simply, we are not just to receive the sacraments, we are to become them. And what I hope for us to see is that our lives are like bread in the hands of Jesus. And what does Jesus do with the bread? Do you remember? He takes it, he blesses it, he breaks it, and then he gives it. The first thing Jesus does is he takes the bread. He takes it. And can I tell you, 
I think one of the greatest truths in all scripture is that Jesus takes us, that he wants us, that he chooses us. The Passover meal looks back at God delivering each, uh, the children of Israel from Egypt. But it also, God commemorated something and, and commenced something as he did that. Listen to what scripture says in, in Exodus. I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And with mighty acts of judgment, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Later on, Jesus in John says this, you didn't choose me, I chose you. One of the other New Testament writers, Peter says this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. I think one of the greatest human needs that we have is the need to be wanted. Kids choosing sides for kickball, will you pick me to be on your team? Students, right? I want this college, will they accept me into their, their program? People entering the workforce, oh, I would love to work at, wouldn't it be great if they chose my application? Or think about even like relationships. I love, this person is so amazing. I wonder if they'll choose me to be their spouse. That question hangs in the air and it becomes this ache in our soul if it's left unanswered. You know, as we think about it, um, I think it gives insight to us, to the amazing inclusivity of God. Think about back that scene in the upper room. Jesus is eating with people that he chose, despite the fact that they were going to betray him, hurt him, abandon him. Truth is, God doesn't choose us based upon our looks, um, our accomplishments, how much money we have, and he doesn't choose us for even like spiritual reasons, like that we're really these good people, or that we give a lot of money to the church, or that we're really good at prayer, or somehow we've earned his favor. God choosing us is not performative. You know what I'm saying? It's not performance. He models for us this beautiful sense of radical inclusivity. Many times we will say this, and I think it does bear repeating. I don't assume that everybody in the room today believes everything that the Bible says or believes everything that we teach. And if you're in that place, really glad that you're with us. It's okay to be here, kick the tires, think critically about faith and examine it. But I want to tell you this. God pursues and chooses us. And, and throughout scripture, <clears throat> throughout scripture, there's this idea that um, God hunts for lost people and lost things. And in the scripture sense, lost doesn't mean clueless or ignorant. Lost means wanted. Lost means pursued. Lost means chased after. And God does that with us in a radically inclusive way. And also think about the elements of bread, right? Bread. I mean, it's one of the most ordinary things. I think every culture on the planet has some form of bread. And God says his body is bread to be given for us. But I think it's also a beautiful metaphor for our lives. A great reminder is Jesus takes the ordinary, everyday 
person. And think about the team of people that he chose, right? They were just ordinary guys. They were not these religious all-stars. They just had normal jobs. They were probably passed over to be um, the rabbi's apprentices. And who does God look for? Who does God choose? I love Jesus, how he says this. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. It's simple. It's, it's nothing really, it's not easy, but it is basic, right? He chooses us, ordinary people, as long as we are willing to surrender to him. So Jesus takes the bread, but then he blesses it. What does it mean to bless something, to bless someone? In our culture, we say, God bless America. Or I think uh, Chris Rock tweeted, God bless America and no one else. Is that it? Is that, is that it? Uh, Lisa and I have family in the South. And many times when we go down there, you hear this phrase, well, bless their heart. And it's like a permission slip, right? You can say anything negative you want as long as you follow it up with, but bless their heart. <laughs> and recently there has been that thing uh, of hashtag blessed, right? But is that really what it is? That, that, that it's just about living the good life? It's a way of saying, hey, things are working out just the way I planned. It's not bad to be grateful for blessings in our life, good and small things. But what happens, what happens when you experience suffering? What happens when you experience hardship? What happens when things don't go as they're planned? Does that mean you're no longer blessed? The Latin word for blessed is benedicere, which means to speak well of, to speak well of. And the, the original language, the Greek, makarios, which means it's not connected to material possessions. When Jesus speaks of blessing, he's referring to something deeper and richer than simply hashtag blessed. It's not superficial and it's not circumstantially based. Glenn Packham is a friend of our church and he writes in one of his books, being blessed the way scripture describes it is about something more something that has to do with the very core of who we are and how we are made. When Jesus blesses our lives, he's speaking to the very essence of who we are, how we are fearfully and wonderfully made. He's speaking well of us, and he's taking us back to the origins of how he has created us to be good, is what scripture says. Now, I by no means was a perfect parent, but there are a few things that, that um, I did that I think was really helpful for my boys when, when we were raising them. Um, <clears throat> I, uh, when they were in, I was probably early elementary, all the way through middle school, I would write them a letter every month. I got these um, two like photo albums, and every month I would write a letter, maybe put a few pictures in there, and I'd share it with the boys. And they, I wasn't sharing things like, hey, you grew an inch this month or anything like that. I usually would write stuff like, hey, I saw you way you treated your mom. Or I would speak of things that were character things in their lives. Kids, they're always like, hey, tell me what I was like when I was little. 
You know, tell me what I was like. This was my opportunity to provide my boys something that they could take even once they leave the house and hear how I blessed them, how I spoke well of them, things that I saw and wanted to speak into them that they would carry with them. And I think that's what God wants to do with us. It is a picture of how Jesus wants to bless our life. He takes us back to the start of what he saw in us when he created us. Again, Glenn Packham says this, to be blessed is to be who we were originally made to be. And that blessing happens when we place ourselves in Jesus' hands like bread. Jesus takes, he blesses, but then he breaks. We love to hear that we're wanted, we love to hear that we're spoken well of, but the idea that our lives may be broken doesn't sound so good to us. And before uh, Jesus takes the bread, look what was going on in the room with him. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. And while they're eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They, will be, they were very sad and began to say to him one after another, surely Lord, uh, you don't mean me. Jesus then turns to Judas and has that interaction with him, kind of calls him out in front of the others. And the truth is that whole room was going to be a a room full of people who failed Jesus miserably. Just in a few short hours, they were going to desert him. Peter, right? He was going to deny Jesus three times. They were all on this pathway of being broken by their failure and their sinful choices. Breaking involves pain and suffering. And that's, truthfully, something we usually don't like to hear. Many people kind of present themselves so good on the outside, but when we come to the table, we bring all, all of us bring our brokenness before God. And the Bible speaks about that. In Romans 3, it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 5 says this, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through his death, through the death of his son, How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? You and I might not think of ourselves as enemies of God, but in essence, that is what we are. And and the reason is, I can speak truthfully from my life, it's because I kind of want to run my own life, right? I want to be the captain of my own ship. And Jesus knows that he needs to break us of that if we're ever going to truly partake of his life. His sacrifice on the cross remedies that. And if we're going to dine with God, he has to address this brokenness, our need to be healed. We have all this self-will and defiance that says, I want to run my life, I want to be in charge of things. But in order for us to partake of God's life, We have to be broken of this. In order for that healing to place, there's this idea we talk about all the time of repentance, of turning ourselves. In the Old Testament, Hosea, one of the writers speaks like that, of this. He says, come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, there it is, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, 
he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. The invitation is to come, to come out of our small, cramped, confined world of self into this beautiful, spacious world of God's life, that God's kindness leads us to repentance. And when we admit and acknowledge our brokenness, we open ourselves up to receiving the grace and the mercy of God. And that opening begins with this idea of kind of a godly sorrow. And godly sorrow is just simply the realization that you and I, we just can't fix ourselves. It's acknowledging that we've come to the end of our physical, emotional, and spiritual resources. And it's this place where we just surrender our lives to God. And, and confession is kind of an integral part of that, acknowledging and agreeing with God that the sin that we've done has damaged our soul and broken our union and communion with God. For me, when I've practiced confession, um, especially when it's areas of habitual, areas that have, I've fallen up on, I love how the psalmist says, create in me a clean heart. But the next line's even better. Renew in me a right, willing spirit. I don't know about you, when I come across areas that I keep tripping on, sometimes it can be so discouraging that you just want to throw in the towel. But asking God, renew in me a willing spirit to keep on keeping on, to keep on being obedient. So Jesus takes he blesses and he breaks, but he also restores, and then he gives. He gives our lives. And this, I love how uh, the uh, Catholic theologian, William Cavanaugh says, the Lord's Supper transforms us. Humans are made members of God's very body, and as members of the body, we then become nourishment for others. I think a simple way to think about it is Taking, blessing, breaking, it roots us in our, in our identity of who we are in Christ. But giving, that roots us in our calling. That's how we've designed, we've been designed to be a people who go out and bless other people, reclaiming how God has designed us to live in the world. And that idea of being nourishment for others is interesting. Remember Jesus said of his own life, he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus gave himself sacrificially as bread to the world so that we would then in turn be a blessing and given as bread to others. And the table does something unique to us. It forms us in this unique way to be the kind of people who become nourishment for other people. You know, uh, I've heard that phrase that says, we are one beggar, telling another beggar where to go to find bread. The world pronounces over you, you're rejected, cursed, beyond repair. But the table reunites us in this beautiful way that says, no, 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 you're taken, you're wanted. You're blessed, you're spoken well of. You're broken and restored, but then you are given as nourishment for the others. And as you think about this, I'll give you a question, maybe to kick around, and maybe even talk in your small group. I've been thinking about this in my own life. When you think about our, us being given as bread to the world, to others, do people who are far from God like to hang out with you? 
I mean, do they, do they like to be around you? If you think about Jesus, think about the people that hung around him. Prostitutes, liars, cheats, thieves. People who didn't get it spiritually. People who uh, kind of pushed against him. In our lives, are people in any way drawn to say, I, I, I want what you, what you have. There's something different about what God is, what's happening in your life, and I want that. Do we live in such a way where people long to see what God is doing in us? Uh, Jay, uh, a few months ago, shared something with our staff that stuck with me. Um, do you know why they keep pretzels and peanuts at a bar? It makes you thirsty, right? Are our lives in any way, do they make other people thirsty? Do we live in such a way where people say, ah, oh, I can see something, something's different in that person's life. I've been thinking about that, trying to analyze, does my life do that for other people? And I don't say that in any way to put guilt or shame on us, but I think it's a good evaluative question. Do people want to be around us because there's something unique and something different in us? And my, my hope and prayer for us as a community is God would deepen us in our ability to be that for other people. I want to invite the worship team up. Um, a few years ago, there was a story in the news that went viral. Travis Rudolph was the uh, wide receiver for the Florida State University football team. And with a few of his um, teammates, he ended up showing up at a middle school. And he noticed uh, at the lunch table that there was a boy who had autism who was eating lunch all by himself. And so he just pulls up, gets a piece of pizza, and has this meal uh, with the boy. This is a picture of it. This picture was taken, and it went viral. And someone sent it to, uh, to uh, this boy's mother. And I want to read for you uh, what this mother posted on social media. I do remember middle school being scary and hard. Now that I have a child starting middle school, I have feelings of anxiety for him, and they can be overwhelming if I let them. Sometimes I'm grateful for his autism. That may sound like a terrible thing to say, but in some ways, I hope it shields him. He doesn't seem to notice when people stare at him when he flaps his hands. He doesn't seem to notice that he doesn't get invited to birthday parties anymore. A friend of mine sent this beautiful picture to me today, and when I saw it with the caption, Travis Rudolph, eating lunch with your son, I replied, who is this? And he said, it's an FSU football player. And then I had tears streaming down my face. Travis Rudolph, a wide receiver at Florida State, and several other FSU players visited my son's school today. I'm not sure what exactly made this incredibly kind man share a lunch table with my son, but I'm happy to say that it will not soon be forgotten. This is one day I didn't have to worry about my sweet boy eating lunch by himself because he sat across from someone who is a hero in many eyes. Travis Rudolph, thank you so much. You made this mama exceedingly happy and have made us fans for life. A couple things I love about that. Number one, that's just a beautiful act of kindness and how impactful some act like that can be. But the second thing, the second thing is the power of a meal, what a meal can do, what it can say and can speak and profoundly in people's lives. And the invitation for you and I 
is that God wants to invite us to have this kind of meal with him, to partake of his life, to be the kind of people that are wanted, that are taken, that are chosen, the kind of people who are spoken well of, blessed, but broken and given to the world, broken, restored, received, and given back to the world. That's what God has designed our lives to be as we partake. And I love the meal. That's, that's what the meal provides for us, is stepping in and partaking the life of God with the Trinity. We have that opportunity to do that. And so I just want to lead us in some moments of taking communion together. Uh, if you haven't grabbed uh, your, I was going to say kit, I guess that's what it is. But I just want to invite us to just slow down just for a minute. <clears throat> Scripture talks about examining our life. Yeah, please, feel free. Examining our life. And I just want to give you a few minutes. Uh, is there anything that you want to confess to God? And you, can, you guys can bring the, the house lights down a little bit if you want. But just pausing to ask the Spirit of God, have, have I done, uh, the ancients would say, sins of omission or sins of commission? Have I done things or neglected to do things? So just, just take a few quiet minutes to ask the Spirit of God, Is there anything you need to agree with him? Anything you need to confess in these moments together? And now I just invite you, can we read this ancient common book of prayer, um, prayer together? Would you read along with me? Almighty God, our heavenly Father, we have sinned against you and our neighbor through our own fault, in thought, in word, and deed, in what we have done, in what we have left undone, for the sake of your Son. O Lord Jesus Christ, forgive us all our offenses and grant that we may serve you in newness of life to the glory of your name. Can I encourage you? When you confess sins, God is faithful and just to wipe the slate clean. You are clean before God because of the work of Christ. And so if you would peel this back, on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he blessed it, he broke it, and gave it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take together. Then in the same way, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Let's take together. I don't know if you caught the last line of the scripture passage, but when they finished this meal, they sang a hymn and they went out. A lot of times we think of the songs that we sing as just kind of filler. But I would invite you. I think it's a beautiful way to be one as a community together. Because when we sing, we're breathing in the same place. 
We're saying the same words at the same time. It's a beautiful way to embody being one as a community. And I'd invite you, even if you don't feel like you're a good singer, speak the words as they come by. And let's just lift up this hymn of song and praise, focusing on the God who has loved us, pursued us, choose us. Let's worship him together. Would you stand together? Let's sing.